Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Larry Mullins is an author who has written several books about or inspired by the Arantia book. And I'd like to invite you to read a history of the Arantia papers by Larry Mullins, available in Kindle and at your favorite bookstore. History of the Arantia Papers is what many consider to be the authoritative account of the Arantia book and how it came to be. Both Larry Mullins and fellow Arantia student and early pioneer researcher and the late Dr. Meredith Sprunger collaborated on this book we are about to discuss, and we are honored to have Mr. Mullins on our program. All right, so first of all, thank you, Larry, for joining us here on Urantia Radio. It's a, it's an honor and a pleasure to speak with you as well. So you set out to create an authentic account of how the Urantia book came to be, and you mentioned that it was important for future students or readers or even researchers of the book to have a proper account, an accurate account, so as to prevent a false narrative from, from surfacing. What are some of the false narratives that you see that are damaging to the integrity of the Arantia book? When uh, we started the history, started working on it, there were, there were four other histories that started, and they've all disappeared. And I, I think um, the one reason or the biggest reason that we've succeeded was because Meredith Springer uh, agreed to work with us and followed the truth wherever it led. So uh, I think that, that that's why our claim to that we have a more accurate representation is based on Meredith Springer's integrity um, much more than mine. Um, he He was without question the most important guy in the early days of the uh, revelation. The, the other issues that arose from the different histories, several of them claimed that Sadler wrote the book. And um, that 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 is, okay, if Sadler wrote the book, then he lied to everybody. And so did Lena. Lena lied to everybody. And so did the full contact commission, and so did Bill Sadler Jr. But he didn't write the book, and and the evidence is very much that that's not the way the book materialized. It's kind of the way Dr. Sprunger expressed it was the materialization of the papers. He never said uh, he never said who wrote the book. He didn't he didn't do that. Uh, another question that comes up is uh, who's, who's the who's the authority that that and and I didn't want to present him as an authority because there is no authority on the Arantia book on the planet there is no one who could say we I know for sure the way it was done or how it was manifested. For those who don't know, uh, just a kind of a brief summary recap. 
the Arantia book surfaced as a series of papers around 1925, as Larry discloses in his book. question remains, and has always remained, uh, of this 196-page uh, series of manuscript that, number one, there was no claim of human authorship ever. Uh, number two, no one knows for sure how the book came to be, and we are told to simply judge it on the merit, and that the, I guess you want to say the people or the personalities who were involved, non-human sources, were very emphatic that they didn't want any human association with the actual writing. So you explain in your book that the revelators wanted no human association with the actual writings. Why do you think it was important for no human being to be associated with the papers, even though they were obviously needing our help in order to get the book published? What do you think was the the main reason they wanted to make clear that no human association became attached to the Urantia book? Dr. Sadler explained that they had said they don't want a St. Peter or St. Paul or Calvin or Joseph Smith, uh, like from the Mormons, they don't want any specific person, human, attached to the whole thing because every revelation that has appeared that are claimed to have authority was based on some human being, and it's always fallible, except with the exception of Jesus, of course, and Melchizedek and those revelations. So they wanted to avoid any kind of a association with some individual who claimed to have authority and have a pipeline to God. So, in other words, it was to prevent a cult of personality from arising around a specific person? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that that would be a good way of saying it. So when people are first introduced to the book, uh, invariably, and I count myself as included, you know, we ask, well, who wrote it? How do you answer that question when people ask you, well, who wrote this book? How do you specifically, based on all of the research you've done, all the people you've talked to, how do you answer that question, Larry? Oh, well, that's that's a tough one because that that's the inevitable question that comes out is the first thing people ask. Um, what I always say is no one knows. We do not have any idea of who wrote the book. Now, the interesting thing is Dr. Sadler and Bill Sadler told the Meredith Sprunger that the writing of the original transcript of the book was in the handwriting of a midware. And so based on that, that's, that's, that says, well, a midware wrote it. However, the question is, it was uh, dictated to him. It comes. It has to be translated from universal languages into uh, English, and it, there were several stages involved with that. So to say that the midware wrote the book is would fit, be physically correct, but however, it, it wouldn't be technically correct. Uh, so, in other words, they of, may yeah. have taken the dictation, but. Uh, the midwayer, which is a, a being that is closer akin to human form, but not a person that we can see, and, but they're able to manipulate objects such as a pen or a pencil. So I think the way Bill Sadler and you describe it in the book is that if you had been sitting there in the room when the papers were being written, all you would have seen is a pencil moving through the air, correct? 
That's true. And the interesting thing there is that no one ever saw it. Yeah, and I want to go back because I think for for depending on who's listening and how much they know about the history or not know anything at all, let's go back to around uh, 1906 when Sadler says that he first came into contact with the person we all know as the sleeping subject. And let's sort of set up the differentiation between the communications that were coming through Dr. Sadler's patients and how they're different from the actual papers that began to appear many, many years later. So how did the sleeping subject and Dr. Sadler meet? Well, um, this is really, really a very interesting question. Um, and I, I think I, I told you I, I didn't include the mind of mischief in the history, but I do see that we did include it. And it it, it gives a complete uh, appendix that Dr. Sadler wrote to the uh, mind at mischief and explains uh, pretty much what these uh, early uh, these early contacts were. Now that went on for quite a few years. I think he said 18 years. Now here's, here's the interesting thing about that. He said that every contact he had was unique, and the, and these personalities would come, and they would be all different and very original, and they would have different points of view. It's so, so there was no organization to the uh, particular communications until the forum was uh, originated. But again, I want to put this in the context is that Dr. Sadler and his wife were physicians. Uh, Dr. Sadler was a world-renowned psychiatrist, and they were in Chicago, and there was a woman who lived nearby, and we're not sure if she knew Dr. Lena Sadler from being a patient or if it's just that maybe Dr. Sadler and his wife were prominent enough where this woman came to them and said, hey, my husband is sleeping very irregular. I don't know what to do. I can't wake him up. And that's what started this initial meeting between these two, correct? Well, that's the story. However, when you look into it really carefully, uh, we're going we're gonna to get to where we start talking about the sleeping subject. Um, the interesting thing about the people involved with the early information was that these people were Lena Sadler, Dr. Lena Sadler, and Annabelle Kellogg, and her husband, Wilfred Custer Kellogg. Now, we have no idea why they were involved, and it become, many people speculated that uh, William Custer Kellogg was the sleeping subject. And I don't know authoritatively, uh, I can't say that he was, or was not, but there is a kind of a strange reason people say, well, wh- why, why were they involved? There, there doesn't seem to be any reason they should be there. Well, I could think and, of one. Um, I, I would say that Dr. Sadler was trying to figure out why this patient was doing what he was doing, and I would imagine any doctor, if they're sitting there treating a patient who is talking in his sleep and saying these profound statements, Dr. Sadler probably wanted to have others observe this phenomena so that they could perhaps assist him in trying to figure out what was going on. And that seems logical to me. Well, the only thing is we've never, Wilford never, I mean, there's never any reason 
for him to be an authoritative participant when they had their was session. he a friend of Sadler's? Well, no, they were they were related. Oh, they were related. Oh, That's right. Yeah, Annabelle mm. Kellogg was the sister of Lena. I see. And Wilfred Custer Kellogg was the her husband. And so that's why many people speculated that the contact was probably Wilfred. But you don't subscribe to that. If people wanted to say, you know, yeah, definitely, I do. I think that was true, but I shouldn't. Speculate. I don't want to claim that authority that I know for sure. But I do know that a lot of people uh, have speculated that. Mm. So there, these conversations between the Saddlers and the sleeping subject ensued for 18 years. Mm-hmm. During the course of that time, Dr. Sadler had decided because of his prominence and his notoriety in Chicago, and of course we have to remember this is 1925 when we, we didn't all have television and social media and Facebook, people actually did get together and have social events. That was... Uh, uh, you know, a main thing that people did. So Sadler decided to have a group of people come to his home, and they would meet uh, a Sunday social, if you will. And at some point, Sadler brought up the fact that he was treating a patient that was baffling him, essentially. Yeah, you know, what, what happened was one of the uh, people in the forum asked him, say, uh, Dr. Sadler, uh, there's this psychic down that claims that he has... Uh, contact with celestial beings. Is, is there any truth in that? What do you think of that? And he said, oh, no. He said, these psychics are all fake. They're just uh, not at all, not at all, no. And then they, he said, now, there's one particular case, though, that I have never completely figured out that I'm involved with now. And this, of course, caused the forum to say, well, tell us about that. So that's when the connection was made, and Dr. Sadler started sharing information that was coming from the sleeping subject. I think that was all kind of uh, circumstanced in such a way that that was sort of in the plan of delivering the revelation. If you're joining us, uh, you're listening to Urantia Radio, Candidly Speaking, and my guest is Larry Mullins, who's written the book, A History of the Urantia Papers. Do you think, uh, knowing all that you know about how spiritual forces, angels, do work on our behalf, as it is clearly delineated in the Urantia Papers, do you think Sadler was chosen for this job? And if you do, what was it about him that made him the perfect candidate for the uh, presentation of the Urantia Papers and then later the publishing? Was there something about him, you think, that caught the attention of our unseen friends? Well, I think so. Actually, um, the question was asked by the contact commission to the Midwares, when did you start working on this revelation? And they told them around 1200. And then they said, well, what caused you, uh, what took you so long? And there was a pause, and, and they said, well, you might think that's a long time. We don't. They attempted several times to do this. And evidently, there were several problems with that, especially with the contact that they chose, that the ego got involved there. And uh, Wilfred Kellogg was unique if it was him. I don't know that it was, but if it was him. And at least the sleeping subject was involved. 
Uh, he was unique in the fact that he has no interest in, in what was going down. Yeah, because he was known as a debunker of psychic and mediumship and spiritism. He he was a rooted, some of accused Sadler of, of perhaps uh, being a Seventh-day Adventist, that, that the Arantia book may have been a clever way for him to introduce his own version of religion. But he was actually very grounded in science and, and common sense for his day and age. Though he was a religious man, he, he he didn't go looking for spiritual phenomena, correct? Oh, absolutely. That's true. Yeah. In your records, uh, the revelators tried unsuccessfully. Do we have any other detail about who they, or what, where we may have, or what period of time they may have attempted to get these papers out? Well, when I, uh, when I tell you this, it's apocrypha. It's not, it's not revelation. So it's only r- rumored. But there was a contact in another city that came up at the same time is the apocrypha of the story. And um, they decided that the Chicago connection would be the one they wanted. So in these 18 years of, of Dr. Sadler and Lena conversing with this sleeping subject, were there other things that were said? And we should also preface this by saying that Dr. Sadler did not believe that this subject was actually being a clearinghouse of sorts for spiritual personalities. He was always of the scientific mind of trying to figure out what the process was. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, Meredith said that he didn't even believe in uh, mental telepathy. He, he, he didn't think that that was possible. And he he was very much a materialist. Do you have any other interesting stories of communiques between the sleeping subject and Dr. Sadler that, that none of us know about? Any other interesting apocrypha, as you would say, things that were actually said? Uh, because all of it was written down, uh, if I understand. Uh, there was always a, st- a stenographer present. So... Uh, inevitably, all of those conversations, did they all just disappear? There's no record of any of them? Well, they were told to destroy all that. All the apocrypha was supposed to be destroyed and uh, when the book was published. And the only thing that they wanted to survive was the, uh, the actual uh, revelation. And I also want to make it clear, and this is what I gleaned from your writings, is that the conversations... Uh, between the sleeping subject and the Sadlers was not the information that would later appear in the written manuscripts, correct? Those are two Absolutely, almost no. two distinctive None events. None of that was supposed to survive. Right. And so uh, before we move on to the next phase, which is the actual appearance of the book, I, I want to ask you, do you think, based on your research, that it, it is possible that a person or a group of people could have written the Arantia papers. And if you don't think that's true, what evidence made you conclusively decide that no human could have written the Arantia papers? Well, I, I don't think it's possible. I, I, don't, I don't believe it could possibly have have a human author or, or even a several human authors. I, I don't think so. Um, what convinced me was just reading the book over the years and years and years. Uh, I'm, I'm just astounded with the depth of it and the uh, quality of it and the consistency of it. 
and and that's what convinced me that it was true. Now I, I will say this though: when I uh, first got the book, uh, it was just another book to me. Uh, Clyde Bedell gave it to me. Uh, I really didn't have any strong belief in it that it was a revelation. Uh, when my daughter died about five years later, she was 13, and when that happened, I needed some kind of solace that would help me get over that. And uh, so I decided the only thing I had that I hadn't read was the Urantia book. So I started reading it from the beginning, and I decided I'd have... Uh, make two rules. One rule would be if I didn't understand something, I would just keep going. I wouldn't keep trying to read it over and over again and try to understand it. And the second thing was if it got to be nonsense, I would put it down and forget it. And that, when I did it that way, I became so involved and interested and fascinated with the amazing story that unfolded, especially when you think about the first two-thirds of the book are about 400 billion years, and you think about the last week of the book was about the third of the book is one week. That the, the, the way the time was laid out, it was totally enthralling to me. And, I've never uh, experienced anything like it. You've met a lot of people over the years, uh, both in your research and as a, in your per, uh, personal relationships, uh, and I've been struck by the caliber of intelligence of people that I would normally think wouldn't be associated with something as strange and unorthodox as the Arantia book. Uh, is that a fair statement? In other words, are you are you impressed by the number of very intelligent, well-read people who agree with you that the Urantia book is in a class by itself? Well, I guess the, 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 uh, a few stand out very much. Meredith Sprunger, for one. Uh, Clyde Bedell was, was one. Um, uh, but I, I, I can't really say that, that there's a whole host of people that I I admire. Um, oh, there's Doctor yeah. Richard Prince, who is. Uh, oh yeah, he's uh, great. He's uh, great. Uh, the physicist. But I, I, you know, yeah. I, I just don't intimately know these. People. Well, no, but uh, what I'm saying is, you know, I, I've always been struck by because every uh, organization has its appeal to certain types of people, and what I've noticed with this particular book, there's two. Uh, commonalities. One is that uh, the Arantia book seems to appeal to people who did have a fair amount of Christian upbringing, but they at some point be, uh, became dissatisfied with the church or religion in general. Or two, people who were keenly aware of science and history and the academics uh, who were very attracted to, I guess, the concepts that the Arantia book puts forth. So that seems to be the the two commonalities of the kinds of people who are attracted to the Urantia book. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. Uh, I, I, you know, there's a kind of a spiritual connection there. So it's 1929. Uh, Bill Sadler has his weekly forums, and then the day comes when Sadler says, "Okay, 
Let's all write some questions and see what this sleeping subject can come up with. So walk us through that period and what happened up into the uh, actual materialization of the papers. Well, the uh, most interesting thing there is when uh, what Sadler reported and was what Lena said um, when he the early on when the sleeping subject suddenly began to talk, or uh, she she said uh, he's moistening his uh, maybe he wants to say something, and that's when he started talking. And what did he say? What was the, well, that's when the first contact was made where he actually communicated by voice with the uh, with with Sadler, Sadler. And, and Lena. But that was way before the Urantia book started coming out. Right. And then this there were at least what, two hundred and fifty sessions where Sadler would go to the uh, residence at night and have these uh, very long conversations with uh, the sleeping subject. So at some point, Sadler, from your writings, uh, History of the Urantia Papers, Sadler decided that he wanted to try to expose this once and for all. Uh, and that's when he decided uh, to take questions to the sleeping subject. Can you tell us what happened at that point? Yeah, there, there was a moment there where he and, and Lena were... Um in contact with the sleeping subject and the the comment that this, the um, supposed entity talking to the subject who was kind of very, very electric and said, look, if you knew what you were in contact with, you wouldn't ask these stupid questions. You'd ask some very great questions that would challenge us to answer. And that, that shocked Sadler when he heard that. And that's when he decided, he took it to the forum, and he said, uh, look, we, we've been challenged by this supposed entity that's talking to the sleeping subject. We've been challenged now to give these questions. Now, when, when uh, he brought it up, he had written down or uh, memorized, he had a photographic memory, he memorized uh, 49 questions, I think, and uh, he he the sleeping the entity speaking said uh by the way i can answer uh 45 of those questions that you have and uh lena said well will you you don't have any questions do you? he says yeah i have that's exactly how many i have and so he he proceeded to answer those questions that that be kind of began the real revelation, I think. And then uh, not long after that, uh, Sadler, in getting the handwritten questions from his fellow Forumites uh, on little 3 by 5 index cards, put those questions in his safe, presumably at his home. Uh, and his plan, I, I guess, was to take those questions and start asking the sleeping subject. But something different happened. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, you detail that uh, about two or three weeks after that forum meeting where the questions were sorted and uh, arranged, then uh, that's when the sleeping subject's wife called the Saddlers and said, you got to get over here. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's very true. Uh, they they came up with uh, almost 400 questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happened at that point was 
they didn't deliver the questions to the entities or to the sleeping subject or anything. Evidently, the communication was the, they knew everything they were doing and what questions they were asking. So what, what came up then was the, the, uh, the Sadler's got a call from the uh, sleeping subject's wife and they, she asked him to come over. She said, you need to see this. And so they came over and looked and found out that this huge manuscript had been written. And that was the first paper that was delivered. And so was it the first five papers of the Arantia papers? Oh, yeah. Well, it was More uh, than the that? first beginning of the revelation. Yeah, it was, it was the answers to the 400 questions. And so probably the first question is, who is God? Yeah, uh, is there really a God, and if there is, what's he like? That was their first question. So the Sadlers go over to the sleeping subject's house. They see a stack of handwritten papers. The first assumption they make is, okay, well, obviously the sleeping subject must have written these. Yeah, and that would be for a scientist. And um, so he tested the, the uh, arm of the sleeping subject to see if it, how, if it was tired, because to write that many, that big a manuscript overnight would have been very, very difficult. Uh, they tested him and found his hand wasn't tired. However, what a scientist would say, well, maybe he just wrote it ahead of time. Maybe he had it all written out before. Uh, so it wasn't evidence of really proof that the sleeping subject hadn't written them, maybe who wrote them, we don't know. Uh, so Dr. Sadler then at that point really had to uh, try hard to figure out how these papers were materialized. Uh, Meredith Sprunger uh, always used the words materialized. He never said how they were written. Mm. Materialized, I almost get this sort of Star Trek-y kind of thing where something's being beamed to a location or something like that. But materialized, meaning the papers themselves materialized with the written words on them or materialized? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the midware, supposedly, according to Dr. Sadler and Bill Sadler, the uh, written that was in the hand, handwriting of a midware the, the papers. Mm -hmm. They tested several people. It wasn't in somebody else's handwriting. Mm -hmm. And it was evidently they decided the only handwriting that they could figure out was must be a um, midware that had written it. But again, it's, he wasn't the original author. Right, right, yeah. He was just taking the information from other sources. And, and for those who are even minutely aware of the Arantia book, every paper has an author at the end of that particular paper. Uh, oh, whether right, it's a yeah. divine counselor, whether it's a Melchizedek, each paper comes with a signatory, someone who says, I was mandated to write these papers because I represent as being an expert in this field of study, whether it's about physical stuff or history or whatever. Do you think that the Midwayer had really good handwriting? Well, they had some problems with the, some of the handwriting. <laughs> uh which someone said that the Jesus papers came uh, completely typewritten, but typewritten. it wasn't true because they had trouble with a couple words mm. that were uh, misspelled, somebody's name or something. 
so they they were in the handwriting of, of the midware. Um, I want to get back. So now we've established that through the activities of Sadler's social group, the Forum, it prompted or opened the floodgates. Now we have these papers that have appeared, handwritten in response to questions. At that point, Sadler decided, okay, well, we really need to take a look at these. Now, I know uh, I want to uh, entice people into buying your book because you go into a lot more detail, but one of the fascinating aspects that I found was that for many years, the people in the forum really didn't know what they were reading, did they? I mean, they didn't have any idea that what they were reading was possibly written by angels or midwayers or spirit, uh, spiritual... Well, I, that, that was, I think there was uh, quite a bit of uh, communication going on between the forum and Dr. Sadler and Bill Sadler, so I think they did know that. Um, there is a quote from in the in the history um, from the Revelators, and they said uh, on page two seventy one, he says, uh, "You will doubtless live and die without knowing or without realizing that you are participating in the birth of a new age of religion on this world." So. Yeah, at, at that point, I don't think they they grasped the scope and enormity of the of the revelation. We're talking with Larry Mullins. He's the author of a history of the Arantia Papers here on Arantia Radio, and we've covered a lot of ground. I want to start getting into closer to the because there's so much detail in the book. Uh, the final papers all completed was around 1934, 35. That's when the uh, Jesus Papers appeared in full set, which was a surprise to everyone. According to Dr. Sadler, he said he wrote in a letter that the, they had a much larger uh, manuscript of the Jesus papers when they started, and it was uh, edited down after the, uh, they took the reaction of the forum, and they changed it and cut things. There was a comment made, um, for example, there was a comment made, that one of the the uh, apostles apostles had a, a a good sense of humor for a Jew, and that caused the the uh, forum to laugh. The people laughed, and then they took that. They found out that that was disappeared after that. You also bring up a point that, uh, which I'm glad you you opened this up, is that the revelators, the unseen friends, as I often refer to them were watching the reaction of the forum as they were reviewing the papers, and that was an important process. Uh, why? Because they would use the reactions as sort of a guide as to what human beings could accept or not accept? Yeah, and, and, and they, I, I think that reaction of laughing about being Jewish and not having a sense of humor, I think that caused them to take that out of the papers. How many uh, members or how many people during that period between 19, well, 29 and 1955, when the book actually became published, how many people were exposed to the Arantia Papers? A rough idea of how many people actually were able to read them before they were published? Well, there was about 450 people that went through the forum, and there were some really staunch uh, people in the forum 
uh, Clyde Bedell and a few others that stuck with it the whole time. But but they came and went pretty much. And and then uh, Midway, one of the uh, Midwayers commented that it, they didn't seem to be changing the uh, spiritual nature of the people that were going to the <laughs> to really. The so people weren't walking away like you and I would, where we start to have a deeper, more profound religious experience. Uh, yeah, these people were right. just sort of. Uh, there was one quote where you say. Boy, you guys just really don't know what you're, you don't even know, you can't even appreciate, uh, where's the excitement, right? Something like that? Yeah, that's so true. You know, they, they'd have dental appointments, they'd have <laughs> take their kids to do something or whatever, and they they really didn't seem to realize the enormity of this revelation. You know what, that's a common thread, even to today. I marvel at the fact that even if you think that the Arantia book is fiction or not, you can't deny the literary uh, brilliance of this book. And it's, oh, you're it, right. it yeah. seems to be, it, it, I don't understand. Uh, so the book is published, 1955 rolls around, uh, 10,000 copies are made, uh, everybody's excited. Um, what happened next? Well, the, uh, really, we have to back up to 1950. When the foundation was formed, and you're talking about the Urantia uh, Foundation, yeah, Urantia Foundation, and uh, at that point, the they, the articles of uh, trust were developed, and one of the uh, things that it said, they, they published these, and so you can read it. Uh, they say that uh, there was to be no changes, whatever, in the, in the particular book. Uh, now. They they were required. They were allowed to destroy the plates. I I, I don't know. If it, it was shocked me a little bit that they did that. The plates but that they, were used they, to print uh, the book, not like the yeah. plates of the Mormon book. Or, uh, these I'm are sorry. Uh, so the process is that you've got the finished text, all typewritten, sent over to the publishers R and R Donnelly. They create these plates by which they can print off copies of the book. So mm -hmm. everything was fixed. The foundation is set up uh, in order to make sure that the book is is kept in its integrity and violet so that no future changes are ever made. So, uh, yeah, what they did uh, what they did do was they kept three copies, and they were told to keep three copies of the original text. But they they, they began printing a different text with. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't keep printing the first printing. Now, now the foundation has agreed to uh, start printing the first replica of the first printing uh, now, and we're we're very much in agreement with the way it's being done now. I want to get to that a little bit more, but when you say they changed the text, who changed what text? Well, um, what happened was. Um, the first printing was changed by um, Christie, and uh, there were about twenty changes made that were physical. Now, what what uh, we we should know note is that uh, when she made those changes, now let's say the midwares would certainly think that if you're you make changes in a document that is 
not yours. It's, you didn't author it, but you, you're making changes. You would put footnotes in it or endnotes or something, mm-hmm. but indicate that you've changed something, um, which was never done. And, and because of that, the changes continued for quite a while. Um, and that's why we need a first printing. That's why we need to preserve the first printing. This issue of the original text, which has been changed over the years, uh, presumably by well-intended people who just are trying to make the Arantia papers perfect, this goes in the face of what the foundation was set up to do, which is to protect the original manuscript as it is, with no changes to any kind of grammatical errors that might arise up or references that maybe aren't clear or conclusive. Why is it important for the Urantia book, freckles and all, imperfections and all, to retain and maintain itself in its original manuscript form? Why is that important? Well, because uh, electronic uh, files can be changed, and... um the only thing that can't be changed is the physical copy of the book. Um, now, I, I've got to say that the Foundation has agreed with this and has agreed to reproduce and print the first printing exactly as it was originally printed. So that's all good, and we're glad. And we have good ter- we're on good terms with them, and we're, we're working on uh, preparing another printing. Okay, so that's good news. Uh, that means that there's some unity in the idea and the notion that the Arantia book, in order to become a touchstone, has to have the integrity of being the, the original book. It'd be like if somebody went in and decided that they didn't like the N-word in Mark Twain, Huck Finn, or Tom Sawyer, yeah. and they decided to change it to African-American, uh, yeah. you know, because... That's a good good example. Right. So that's... that's And your your thought is that hundreds of years in the future in order for the book to have any kind of lasting authority, the future readers must know that that is the original text. That's right. And then they can compare the the SRT, the standard reference text, which is what the Foundation's printing now. They can compare that and just say, um, and, and several people have made agreed with this, that they can actually see for themselves what was changed, and should they have changed it? All right, so I want to move on now. So the book's published. It's out in the mainstream. What was uh, the early reaction to the Urantia revelation being foisted up, uh, upon humanity for the first time? It's 1955. <laughs> what happened? Well, a lot of the a lot of the people in the forum were thought there would be a fantastic response once it came out. It'd be it would be reviewed and exciting and wow, look at this. Uh, but that didn't happen. Now Wilkins was one of the uh, uh, brilliant people uh, that he uh, he sent out ten copies to different people that he thought were intellectually capable of understanding it, and he got no no response at all. Wilkins. Now Clyde told me that he put out several copies to different. Uh, celebrities and and politicians that were he thought were capable of understanding it and no reaction at all but people kind of thought it was a joke or some kind of a nonsense uh is what wilkins said hmm. 
And this has been the story, I think. Uh, why do you think this book was written and produced in this age when so few people seem receptive to it? Because it does, uh, as you had mentioned uh, privately the other day, uh, this isn't a, a religion. Uh, it's a presentation of reality that synthesizes religion, science, history, cosmology, philosophy, and that's a that's kind of a revelatory concept. Um, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's uh, it truly is. And um, it, I, when people ask me, "Well, is this a religion?" I say, "No, it's not a religion. It's it's not religion. It's not science. It's not philosophy. It's a synthesis of all three. Uh, that's the way the book was written to synthesize these revolutionary ideas." Are you happy with the um, the growth of the Urantia community at large, or are you dissatisfied with it? Well, I, I kind of see, uh, I think it's making progress. Uh, it just has never penetrated the mainstream, unfortunately, and uh, it probably won't for a hundred years. Anything specific in the Urantia book that convinced you as they say, threw in the intellectual towel or, you know, case closed, I'm convinced. Was there anything specific in the book that reached out and grabbed you, that convinced you that it was an authentic revelation? Well, yeah, it, uh, I could say that when I, when I lost my daughter uh, and I started reading the book uh, from the beginning, uh, there were I had studied Maslow very deeply after, before that, and Abraham Maslow would have agreed with the the entire concept of the book. Um, and I realized that the depth of this, and then with Mortimer Adler, I read him a great deal. Once I studied philosophy and uh, science in the sense of uh, Maslow with philosopher of psychology. Once I studied that, I realized the depth of the book was enormously beyond what most people understood. I uh, I also am happy to hear that you and your wife, Joan, have enjoyed reading the Urantia book together for many, many years. That must be nice to have that shared uh, interest in this uh, very important uh, book. Yeah, and Michelle, uh, our daughter, we have a study group every week. Really? Uh, f- from distance on the phone. Yeah, we 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 very much. Uh, she read the whole book, and we had a study group uh, years ago in Boulder, mm-hmm. where uh, the Thurston's. There were three kids that they attended that, and we read the entire book all the way through. And when they got done, they wanted to start again. Mm. If you were to point anybody to a particular section of the book as an introduction, what would part of the book would you recommend to someone who had never read the Urantia book? Well, we had a kind of a rule with Berkeley Elliott when we were in an study group. Uh, if people came in that didn't know anything about the book and were new, we would go to paper 100 and read that and... That gives an overview of religion uh, that's very unique and different. Religion as a personal experience or something like that. Larry Mullins, thank you so much for joining us on Candidly Speaking here on Your Rancher Radio. 
I, I know there's so much more ground to cover, but we've covered a lot. And I appreciate your insight and especially all of the hard work that went into researching the actual origins of this, uh, this marvelous uh, manuscript. So thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. 